Now on your way in, I don't know if you noticed that can outside uh, with some rainbow coming out. Okay, it's supposed to be rainbow, okay? Uh, because it's in line with our series uh, in June, a celebration of love uh, from the Song of Songs. It's the issue of sex. Now, we don't often hear this topic being preached at church. But if you don't hear from church, then where do we hear it from? Culture, our friends, and so we're always misinformed. And our struggles, our difficulties, uh, we all hide it in secret. And so it's the idea is like, when you open it, it's a can of worms. You know, but if we understand the redemptive power of the gospel, it's not a can of worms, but a can of rainbow. And so it's my hope through this series, we experience the redemptive power of Christ. You know, I came to faith in my 20s, so you can imagine all my sexual values are wrong. You know, and I came to church, you know, and I was taught by church, this one, no, 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 no. So I got my act together. So no, 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 no. Then, then what is can? Right? Everything cannot. Then what can? Nobody said anything. And I wonder, you know, if at that time, I went to talk to my pastor. Uh, you know, he's a traditional Chinese pastor. I think his whole face will turn white, you know. I say, so let's talk about sex. Now, you talk to me, I will not turn white. I'll just show you my black face, okay? No, I won't show you my black face. I'll be more than willing to answer your questions. In fact, I think it's an important topic to talk about in church. That is why when I first came on board in QBC, okay, this is eight, nine years ago, uh, I was in charge of young adults, right? And our first retreat, uh, the topic of the retreat was on Song of Solomon, sex. And that's the only retreat I've ever led, you know, that uh, the senior pastor and the, the the president of the church came. Two of them were sitting behind, arms folded, looking at me. You know, it's like I say, oh, xiao liao, you know. After I say this, do I still have a job? Thankfully, I'm still here, right? Of course, that was a young adult retreat, so I cranked it up. Uh, this one, I only put at level one, okay? Uh, but we are thankful when we need the Holy Spirit to really show us God's love. Earlier, when we were praying in the pre-worship prayer, you know, and then Pastor Leonard asked, what day is it today? And you know, Pastor Leonard always tries to be funny. So I, I answered, I said, is it my birthday? Is it I forget? You know, I was being facetious, right? And this is, no, it's Pentecost Sunday. I was like, oops. <laughs> uh, this is my holy post, okay? <laughs> Suddenly it become very serious. But uh, jokes aside, we need the whole power of the Holy Spirit to shed God's love abundantly in our hearts, as Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5. And that's my hope for this series. So let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer as we open His word. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to You. I pray for Holy Spirit truly to shine Your light of love into our hearts, especially those doors that we keep locked up, that we will not walk in darkness, but we will walk in light. We will see Christ lifted up and You glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Because... I believe true love waits. I made a commitment to God, to myself, to my family, to my future spouse and my future children that I will not have premarital sex from this day on till I get married. Samantha Puxley said this when she was 10 years old. In her church with other little girls, they took a purity pledge. She said, since young, I was taught by the church that sex is meant for married people. And anything apart from that is sin, is dirty, and will send me directly to hell. I believe my responsibility is to keep myself pure for my future husband and then to meet his needs after that. And so I wore my badge, my virginity, like a badge of honour. 
My church will often ask me to give a testimony to encourage other young girls. And whenever this topic comes up in conversations, I will tell them I took the purity pledge. And then I met my husband. We dated for six years. And every time when there's anything remotely sexual between us, I'll be wrecked with guilt. And so, with an unhealthy mixture of pride, fear and guilt, I made it to the finishing line. I remember my wedding night. I stood in the bathroom of the hotel. I was in my white lingerie staring in the mirror and I said to myself, you made it. God is proud of you. But there was no angel singing nor bright light shining on me and no one prepared me for the pain that I experienced. And that night, I found myself hiding in the bathroom, secretly crying to myself. I didn't understand why. You see, all my life I was told that sex is dirty and sinful and then suddenly now that I'm married, it's supposed to be something beautiful. I could not make that switch. You know, friends, we are bombarded by sexual images in our life today. Social media, movies, and what have you. Everybody tells us a, a different value about sex. And when you hear the story of Samantha, what, what do you think? How do you feel? Remember, we judge a truth not by our personal experience, nor by our intellect, but by the Word of God. And so for this month, we will look at the Word of God. Songs of Solomon. Now you may not agree, or maybe not be happy that I talk about this, or even be upset with me, uh, but I can only promise you, I will tell you what the Word of God says. So from Songs of Songs, chapter 1 and 2, today, we look at one, the first statement, sex is, what is it? And then two statements, what is, sex is not. Okay, one statement of sex is, and two statements, what sex is not. So let's look at the structure of this book. This is a chiastic structure, which means the first and the last sections shares the same theme. And then the second and second and last reflects the same theme. And the genus or the, at the center of it, that is the focus of the book. This, is very, this structure is common in Hebrew literature. And so it centers upon the wedding day. The whole book is about two lovers, two young lovers, their pursuit, their romance, their marriage, you know, and then what happened after that. Essentially, it's about sex. And you wonder, you say, hey, what kind of, this kind of book, why is it found in the Holy Bible? Good question. Because the ancient Israelites asked the same thing. And so to them, they never let their kids who are below 12 years old to read this book. And they regarded this book as talking about the love of God for His people. And so when the church came about, the early church fathers did the same thing. You know, it's about Christ's love for the church. Now, nothing wrong with that, except their approach is what we call an allegorical approach. Meaning, you know, when you read a text, the meaning don't really matter because if whatever you feel impressed or feel, feel like it, that's what it means. For example, Oregon, a well-known church father, he said, the two breasts of the women in Song of Songs refers to the Old and New Testament. Like that also can. But you know, he's a serious Christian. You know how serious he was? Because he was influenced by the Greek philosophy. He believed sex is dirty and to be holy, you cannot have sexual thoughts. He castrated himself. 
Huh? How many of us are so serious about our faith to be holy? <laughs> and so, likewise, he castrated the Song of Songs. He says it's not about sex, it's about Jesus and, you know, and the love for his church. Now, the way we approach this book will be first by the literary, uh, literal method, meaning we read and we, we see what for it for what it means. It is about love, sex, and marriage. But we will take a typological approach. You see, if we believe that all 66 books of the Bible is a revelation of, of God, from Genesis to Revelation, is talking about one story, and that is God's redemptive story. And so to understand what the book is, we have to understand the purpose and its role within this redemptive arc. What is it telling us about this story? About the story of Messiah loving His people. And so when we take it literally, we also understand it typologically. For example, in the Old Testament, we have what we call types of Christ. Adam was a type of Christ. Because in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is the last Adam. Right? The bronze serpent raised up in the wilderness is a type of Christ. Because in the New Testament, we are told that Christ will be lifted up like the serpent. Likewise, in the story of Song of Songs, it is about the true son of David, not Solomon, but Messiah, who loves his church, whose soul is darkened by sin. Okay, we'll unpack this, okay? If you don't understand, it's okay. Uh, we'll unpack this slowly. And so over the next four weeks, we'll look at first the anticipation during their romance. And then second one is uh, after they consummate their marriage naked and unashamed. And then there are some problems, conflicts, and then they reconciled. And then finally, three weddings and a funeral. You know the whole Bible's the our whole history of mankind can be told by these three weddings and a funeral. It begins in the wedding in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. It lands in where we are today, the Song of Songs, demonstrating Christ's love for us, according to Ephesians 5, that points us to the culmination in a new heaven and earth, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where Christ will come for His bride, the church. And all these are made possible because of the funeral on Mount Calvary because of the death of Jesus Christ. And that is why we have a redemptive story to tell. Oh, without further ado, let's jump into the text. First, sex is a blessing. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, like Holy of Holies means most holy. Song of Songs means it's a beautiful song written by Solomon, the third king of the nation of Israel, the most powerful, most prosperous, most wise he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,000 songs. And this one made it to the canon of Scripture. He said, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. The young girl is calling out for her lover. The word love, doyodim, is physical love. So make no mistake about her intentions, okay? She's not asking for a cuddly love. And then she says, Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Okay, back then, those people don't shower like us. So they put scented oil to make them smell good. So the moment you step into the room, you know the fragrance fills the air. But this is a metaphor. You see the Hebrew parallelism. The first statement is paralleled by the second. Your oil, your name. She's really referring to his character. So she's attracted to Solomon not just because he looks good, but because of his character, his name, his reputation, and he said, deservedly, all the maidens of Israel love you. 
Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. What are they doing in the king's chambers? Do you really need me to explain? She's clearly expressing her desire. The king's chambers and, you know, we will rejoice in you, be glad, we will extol your love. And we say, wait a minute, why is there you, us, king, we? Is she confused? Drunk on love? No, okay? In the ancient Near Eastern literature, when they write poetry, they use different person, the first person, second person, third person, which is I, you, me, we, right? To bring out the richness of emotions. So she's expressing her deep desire for her lover. And then suddenly she feels embarrassed. Suddenly she feels insecure. And then she says, Ah yeah, but I'm black. I'm black but lovely, oh daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keda, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm swarthy, because I'm dark. Right? For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons, her brothers, are angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. She's saying she worked hard under the sun and now become very dark. Because she's thinking about wanting to be with her lover and then suddenly she feels insecure and then she says, oh, yeah, but I'm so black, you know. And then suddenly she says, tell me, oh you who my souls love, where are you? For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Say, why should I be, those veiled ladies are mourning crying. Say, why should I be upset? Why should I be mourning? She longs for the presence of a lover. So you can imagine, right? She says, oh, I want to be with him. Then suddenly, she feels a bit insecure. And then she says, oh, yeah, I'm black. They say, yeah, where are you? Okay, this is Singapore version, okay? <laughs> then verse 8, he appears. He says, oh, if you yourself do not know, you're most beautiful among women. Go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Meaning, you know where to find me. And then he continues, to me, my darling, you are like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. It's like, what? You say my face very long like horse, is it? No. The mare of the horses of Pharaohs, they are white. They are very precious. So you see, she feels insecure, right? She says, I'm very dark. And then he goes, No la, you're so white, you know. I think we need to learn from him, you know. You know, and my wife tell me, I, I'm very stressed. I say, Yala, yala, why are you so stressed? <laughs> I think I need to learn from Solomon. I say, Yeah, yala, you know, should know how to sweet talk. But we you know what strikes me here. It's not a sweet talking. <laughs> what strikes me here is that it is the woman expressing her desire. Now, this is surprising. But it's true, it's real. Sheila McGregor, she is a Christian writer who research on, uh, she does research in marriages. She said about 30 to 40% of marriages, the wife has higher sex drive than the husband. But this is not what our culture tells us. So in her research, she says those women with higher sex drive, they will feel isolated and confused and think, am I normal? Well, when you look at Scripture, it's normal. Because sex was designed by God. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. It's both ways, not just one way. The, the, the wife just has fulfilled her duty, right? And so when we look at this topic of sex, sex is a blessing. In human history, we tend towards two views. The moralist or traditional conservative view, sex is dirty. I want to be holy, I avoid it. The other view, the other view is that sex is an appetite. You are hungry, you eat, you are thirsty, you drink, you feel like you're horny, you have sex. And because we are influenced by Greek philosophy, that 
the body is not important, only the spirit is important. Hence, they tend towards first being a hedonist, sex is an appetite, do whatever you want, or you become like a stoic and ascetic. Withdraw from the world so that you can live a holy life. Now, we are not conservative, nor are we liberal, we are biblical. Sex is not dirty, sex is not an appetite, sex is a blessing. So let's look at the first issue. Sex is dirty. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night within my breast. She's saying she wants to seduce him with the, her, her smell and draw him to her breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of hina blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. And then she takes it up a notch. Verse 2, chapter 2, continues. Like an apple... Okay, before that, they, the, the guy responds and she talks back. Okay, so both of them are talking. And then here she says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade, I took delight and sat down and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, what is she saying? It's an imagery of drawing close to her loved ones. But Tremere Longman, a legit Hebrew scholar, I say legit because it's not those that put Hebrew words up there and then butchers the language, okay? He's a serious Hebrew scholar and he says that this verse is a veiled reference to a certain sexual act. Now, what act? I'm not going to say here. But you say, no, where God, you think yourself. Lah. Then we read on, okay? Verse 4, he says, He has brought me into a banquet hall and his banner over me is love. He, he, he gives us a sense of security and protection and within this security, she desires him and then she cries out, Oh, sustain me with raising cakes and refresh me with apples. It's like, huh? Right, you're already so excited. Suddenly, raising cakes and apples? See, raising cakes uh, is an aphrodisiac in that culture. The word apples can be also translated as pomegranate. You know, that one that has a lot of seeds, uh, red, juicy. It's often a metaphor, an image for sexuality. And sometimes it's translated analogous to the human sex organ. And you say, oh, are you serious? She read God say, give me aphrodisiac and give me sex organs. But she tell you herself, why? Because I'm lovesick. The word lovesick is, I really need it. No, you don't stone me, okay? You don't believe, you look at the next verse. And she says, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Now, what position is this? Now, you may not agree with me, okay? But just you read for yourself. I remember that time when I preached this. There was a young person, okay? And they are not, this person is not from our church. After that, she came up to me and said, you are so sexist. You know, as a pastor, people call me a lot of things, okay? But first time, people call me sexist. And because I'm a pastor, I go, oh, aligato. But I'm thinking, you own self don't know how to read the Bible, you blame me? <laughs> so, you know, if you're feeling uneasy, uh, upset, it's not my fault, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I'm trying to make it funny uh, because, you know, I, I preach here a bit hot under the collar because you're so tense. You tense, I also tense, you know. I can feel it. <laughs> Sex is not dirty. That is something we need to get into our minds from the conservative moralist approach. Samantha Puxley, she said, 
that she continues to struggle with the issue of sex after she got married. She says, I was afraid to undress before my husband, to kiss him. When nighttime came, I always felt dreadful in case he wants sex. I would oblige because that's my responsibility, because I love him. And allowed this to go on for two years until one day I just broke down. And I told him all my struggles. And my husband, who is a feminist, was shocked. So he agreed to stop having sex and he encouraged me to go seek therapy. And that began my long journey of healing. And then she said this, 10-year-old girls love to believe in fairy tales that if we keep ourselves pure for God, God is pleased with us and He will lead us a wonderful husband and we will live happily ever after. But my waiting did not lead to happily ever after. It landed me in therapy. It controlled my sense of identity and it left me a stranger in my own body. Instead, along this path of healing, I realized I cannot maintain my sexuality and my religion. And so today, I no longer believe in God. I chose sex. Friends, do we really need to make a choice between sex and God? Of course not. God came up with the idea in the Bible, it shows us that sex is a blessing. It's not dirty, it's not an appetite. It tells us it's faithfulness within a marriage and chastity without. And you know, this simple statement, I would say revolutionized the whole sexual mores of the Roman Empire. In the Roman world, they tend towards two extremes. One, they have this thing called virginity cults, vestal virgins, means women who keep themselves pure and they serve at the temple their whole life. And they are given special privilege. They are extra holy. And then we have the rest of the, the culture, you know, the society, that they are openly having sex left, right and centre with men and boys and women. There's a governor who wrote a letter. I will tell, re, translate to you, heavily redacted. He essentially said, we can all admit that we prefer to have sex with young boys than women. Especially when they are young and tender before they grow hair in certain places. Okay, when you read those Roman documents for yourself, I tell you, you'll be shocked. It's like, <gasps> like that one. Huh? And then today, we still want to go back to the pre-Christian world. Really? You know, when Christianity came about with this value, faithfulness within marriage, chastity without, it's no wonder people began flocking to the faith despite the persecution. And you know who? Women. When Christianity came about, it accorded rights status, dignity to women, the marginalized, the poor, the slaves who had no rights, no position within that society. And so we do not extol virginity, friends. We extol obedience. And obedience, that's a response to the redemptive story of Christ. So we are not fighting for our justification, we are fighting from our justification. You know what I mean? We're not trying to be holy so that we can be justified, so that God can love us. We are already justified. We are already called righteous because of the gospel and it is from the position of love and security that we fight for holiness. Sex is not dirty. It's not an appetite. 
She continues, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. In the midst of declaring her sexual desires, suddenly she says, don't arouse it before the right time. You know, next week onwards, you know, when we read chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, when she talks about sex, there's no restraining, okay, because they're married. But right now, they're not married, and so she restrains. You'll see this verse, this refrain, this statement re- repeated. Don't arouse desires until the right time. You know, don't go travelling alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't start... You know, this is how sexual attraction begins, right? You like somebody, the longer you're a person, the more you're attracted, you hold hands not enough, you hug not enough, you kiss not enough. Don't arouse desires until the right time. And that is why I also find what Disney is doing a bit uh, not very nice, right? They set up one department just to normalize the same-sex lifestyle. That every movie, a Disney movie, will have such a character so that the, the executive says, so that they can brainwash the children, There's a right time for sexual desires and there's a wrong time for it. Do not arouse sexual desires until the right time. So Samantha, she continued to share. She says, every day of my life, I remind myself that my body belongs to me, not my childhood church. That my value is not defined by a pledge I took when I was 10 years old. That if I want to have sex with my husband, it's because I want to, not because it is my duty. And if I could go back in time, I would have sex with him. I would not wait and that would not lead me to hell. And then she said, it's, my, it's, it's your body. It belongs to you, not your church. Your sexuality is nobody's business but yours. And I will concur with this, right? To all the young ladies, ladies, the body is yours. Don't get pressured by the culture, your boyfriend or the media or anybody else. But to all young girls, young men, old men, young women, old women, we are not our own. You have been bought with a price. And so when we surrender to the Lordship of Christ, it's not just to come to church, it's not just in our work, it's not just in our community, in our schools, in our studies, it is also in our sexuality. You are not your own. And so in the pastor's voice, I shared about Charlie Sheen. Famous guy, successful person, but he's in one sex scandal after another. And so G.K. Chesterton a lay theologian, he wrote this, every man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. He says this desire for intimacy is a misdirected spiritual longing. We desire what is eternal, but on earth, without God, we cannot find it. And so we find, we try to have this obsession of sex to feel that need. I mean, think about it, from an evolutionary point of view, right? If we have sex, sexual desires to procreate, to survive, In the modern world today, the overpopulated world, you don't need it anymore. But why are we still obsessed with sex? Perhaps it's because, from a theistic point of view, because we are created in the image of God, we desire intimacy with our Creator, and when we cannot find it, we find other replacements. As Pope Benedict would say, false eternity, 
fictitious, something. He says, man strives for eternal joy. He would like pleasure in the extreme, would like what is eternal. But when there is no God, it is not granted to him and it cannot be. Then he himself must now create something that is fictitious, a false eternity. So we are not conservative or traditional. We are not liberal. We are biblical. Sex is a blessing. And the two issues I mentioned to you, you know, Paul actually deals with it. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you wrote to me, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. And he goes on to explain why this is wrong. The chapter before, he says, food is for the stomach, stomach is for the food. The idea that sex is an appetite, and then he tells them why they are wrong. And the key is in verse 16 to 18. He says, flee immorality. How do we deal with this? Flee, because every other sin is outside our body, but immorality is against our body. Immorality grips us, keeps us in bondage. And the word immorality here is pornea, where we get the word pornography. But it doesn't mean pornography, okay? It, there's a specific word for adultery, uh, sex outside of marriage. But this word actually means anything outside a marital relationship. You're single, you have sex, you bought with, of course, in the context also with boys and women and all kinds of things. It is wrong. Flee from it. Why? The verse before it says, Do you not know a prostitute, when you join with her, you become one body? What does it mean to be one flesh? It means have sex. No, it doesn't. Because if one flesh means have sex, then you read the, the verse 16. He who joins, he who has sex with a prostitute is having sex with her. Doesn't make sense. Right? So one body, it means that not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, financially, we are ready to, to leave our security. We are ready to be um, vulnerable. We are ready to, be, to leave our independence to come together. And that becomes one flesh. And so if you're not ready to commit mentally, emotionally, uh, financially to somebody, then we don't abuse the gift of sex. And I believe it's within the covenant of marriage that gives the best conditions to have this relationship, this intimacy. Now the key actually is in verse 17. After he says this, joining a prostitute is one flesh, he says, but, every time but comes out in the Bible, you must must pay attention. Not um, okay, but but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus Christ is one flesh with us. He's willing to give up his independence, um, his security, to be totally vulnerable with us, naked and unashamed with Jesus. Ooh la la. Th that's exactly what he's saying. Jesus, when when did Jesus become one flesh with us? In His incarnation, He came, Creator entering into His creation. Upon the cross, he's, He hung naked and unashamed, bearing the sins of the world, your sin and my sin. And it's because of this that we can have hope. You know, for those of us, or singles, you say, I'll never have, uh, if I follow the Bible, I'll never have this sort of intimacy. We'll deal with this along the way over the next few weeks. But what it's saying here is that the ultimate sense of intimacy is intimacy with God. Within the, the body of Christ. Sexual intimacy is good. It is a blessing. It's designed by God. But it's a signpost. A signpost, meaning it points to something. It points to a greater intimacy with our Creator. For those of us who are struggling with our can of worms because we have not spoken about this before, 
struggle with pornography, extramarital affairs, premarital sex, um, same-sex attraction. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can have hope. We can have freedom. That your can of worms can become a can of rainbows. Everything can be reset. You say, oh, but it's happened so many years ago. I'm so old, I don't need this now. Yeah, but we still can have forgiveness, renewal. We can learn to forgive each other. I shared earlier, right? I came to church in my 20s. Before that, you know, when I travel overseas, I'll buy pornography materials, come back and sell. Okay, that was pre-internet era, okay? In the internet era, this business model don't work. <laughs> but I was thinking, why not, you know? That's what the culture teaches me, right? All guys are like that and I can enjoy and can make money out of it. Then I came to church, you know, I was converted. I got my act together. This is wrong, that is wrong. But you know, the sin and temptation don't leave you just like that. I've accepted this as my lifelong struggle. Okay? But we can experience freedom, a, a huge measure of freedom and joy. And today, I will share with many young adults that, you know, all my electronic devices, I put a software because I do not want to be tempted unnecessarily. I came to church and, you know, this is wrong, that is wrong, but nobody told me what is right. And, you know, after marriage... I didn't know how to communicate with my wife about sex. It took us 10 years, 10 years. In my 10th year of my marriage, we were leading the Art of Marriage uh, retreat. Okay, leading it, okay? Um, there's Art of Marriage retreat coming up, so I encourage you all to sign up. <laughs> Don't, if you're young or old, also can, okay, as long as you're married. But it was the 10th year of marriage that I finally had a breakthrough because we had to lead the, the materials, we went through it, and I finally felt that God gave me permission to speak about this. I don't know if you understand that, but you know when you come to church, nobody talks about it. It's like, am I supposed to talk about it? And so today I talk about it, right? I give you permission. <laughs> you know, if we do not, we will remain in secret, in darkness. And over the years when I preach about this topic, um, after that, there were people who talk to me or text me. After service, don't worry. I don't, talk to me doesn't mean you have problems. <laughs> okay, but every time there there'll be at least one or two people who will tell me their issue and every time, almost every time, I've seen that God has worked. Struggling with same-sex attraction, in fact, in the same-sex relationship, being able to walk out of it after many years. Maybe you need counselling, maybe you need accountability group, but the point is, you must be willing to step forth. People struggling with pornography, getting into accountability groups, people feeling guilty because once upon a time they travel and they have sex with a prostitute. You know, when we do not expose our sin to the light of the Word, to another person, it remains in darkness and it festers into a, a can of worms and we can never truly enjoy the freedom and intimacy with Christ. I want you to share, to be open, but it's difficult because you say it's shameful. But you know what? Because Jesus hung upon the cross naked and unashamed, we do not have to be bound by our shame. In the gospel, we are free. He takes all our shame away and while we're still struggling, it's okay, come on. We are sinners, we struggle. But we struggle together as a body of Christ to pursue holiness. We do not fight for our justification, we fight from our justification. And you're justified by faith in Christ. And so I invite you. Christ wants to be one flesh with us. The moment we become His child, we are one flesh, intimate, 
He takes our nakedness, our shame, and put it on Himself so that we do not have to bear it alone. Are you willing to come? Let's pray. Father, I want to again give thanks to you as we open your word. Your Holy Spirit will pour forth your love abundantly in our hearts to know that we are loved by you. Not because of our morals, but because of your gospel, because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of what our Lord Jesus accomplished upon the cross. And it is in this security, this identity, this love that we bring our brokenness to you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling, Lord, that you will meet them at a point of need. Now give us some time to respond to the Lord in prayer. And after an appropriate time, uh, the worship leader will lead us in response.